Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise <laughs> yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you cap i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear left turkey national ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and delta is this the same guy who uh, buzzed the, the, the caravan of Jeeps on the beach? We saw a video a bunch of episodes ago about a guy who did a low pass, really low pass. Um, and, and in fact, Avweb uses that picture in the story. And now there's what it may be follow-up to, uh, to this guy who uh, did some stupid pilot tricks and got an emergency order of revocation on his license. I mean, this guy. This is this is this is the poster child for everything you shouldn't do in an airplane. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, this is just astounding. Let's see now. Pa, uh, March thirteenth. I'm reading from avweb.com here. Uh, March thirteenth, twenty ten. Diamond DA forty, piloted by Joseph Kerbau, flew low enough over Crystal Beach, Texas, to snag a fishing line, snap a fishing pole, blow off a man's hat. Etc. 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 And uh, somebody dropped a dime on him to the FAA, uh, which I don't have any problem with. And uh, and the FAA has acted, and uh, they basically. So, Jeb, you probably know more about Dave too, more about how these things usually work. You know, if you piss off the FAA, there's probably a process, and there's some letters, and there's some phone calls, and there's some meetings, and they eventually decide. You know, in the worst case, that they're going to take your your certificate away from you. Well, they didn't do that this time. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, in 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 each instance, and, and according to this article, the um, the offending event occurred on March 13, and uh, here we are talking about it in early July. Oh. So there's you know, let's call it three and a half months uh, uh, that intervened. Um, so it was not. Uh, an immediate uh, event, immediate process. Um, the FAA in this role kind of takes the, the role of a law enforcement official, where they, you know, conduct an investigation, um, develop. Hey, hang on, we lost Dave. I didn't realize. Uh... <laughs> and I did such a good job too. It was um, great transition too. Yeah, yeah I was going to say the 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 last thing I remember her hearing was this guy is a poster child for. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me think about this. How are we going to do this? I mean, we're just going to confess. We're just going to fess up, folks, that we lost Dave there, and uh, he didn't hear it. Jeb, you were you were uh, expanding or correcting I, or clarifying my uh, my poetic statement there. Go I ahead. completely lost my thought. We're going to have to know. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, what I was what I was saying is, you, you had indicated that this had, uh, your perception was that this had happened uh, very quickly and. And I guess I was trying to point out that uh, uh, not not so much. Uh, the the event occurred on March 13, and here we are in early July, uh, discussing uh, this emergency revocation. Um, in this kind of an event, the FAA takes on the role of a law enforcement officer, where um, you know they they receive a complaint, um, they investigate the complaint, they establish some evidence, 
uh, they bucket to um, counsel. It's you know uh, like law and order. You got you know the law enforcement people. You got the lawyers. Clonk clonk. Uh, clonk clonk. Yeah, yeah, right. And um, um, it's really you know it's, it goes through a process. Uh, I don't know everything there is to know about this particular instance. Obviously, you know, for example, uh, it's likely that the FAA, you know, sent the guy a letter, probably registered mail, saying, you know, whiskey tango foxtrot, you've got you know X number of days to respond. Uh, he may or may not have gotten an attorney to respond. He may or may not have responded on his own. Um, in this in this instance, it strikes me that you know the, the FAA really had very little choice. He he flew low enough to snap a fishing pole. Yeah. Give me a break, I dude. Know, huh? um, and and you know, according to this article in AvWeb, um, witnesses saw the pilot smile or laugh each time he made a pass that caused people on the beach to duck. How many passes did he make? I know. Okay. You know what I um, want to know? You know, and I'm sort of not joking here. Was alcohol involved? Was some sort of mind-altering substance involved? Because this is beyond stupid. What did this guy, what was he thinking? Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a good I, question, and, and no one's going to come up with an answer. There, there, there may be an actual uh, uh, conclusion here that thinking didn't factor into this. Yeah, but... Wow. I mean, you look at the you look at the photograph. You look at the revocation order. I took a look at it, and it's kind of like whiskey tango foxtrot. Yeah. Whiskey tango foxtrot. Whiskey tango foxtrot. I know. I know. Damn it. I mean, how can you hang out around airplanes for even the amount of time it takes to look, you know to get a license? All right, and not realize that this is not a good idea. That you're going to get and and in this day and age of YouTube and you know cameras on every single telephone, the idea that he wasn't going to get his tail number snapped, you know, was just mm -hmm. you know yeah. this is just well, nuts. On the upside, folks in South Texas, there may be a Diamond DA40 available for low cost or available for extra rental time here for the next year. Yeah, but you got to unwind the fishing wrap from the propeller spinner and. Uh, yeah. There's two. There, yeah, again, there's two items here. Three items here. Um, item ten. Reading the reading the, from the emergency order here now. Item ten. You flew so low over uh, a person on the beach that the wind from your aircraft blew his hat off yeah. on two different passes. I know. Okay. I. Know. I uh... um, you flew so close to another individual on the beach that you broke his fishing pole when your aircraft snagged his fishing line. Yeah. Give me a one, break. One, one, too many, <laughs> one too many replays and reruns of the last flying scene in Top Gun where... Maverick breaks a sound barrier flying the pass over the aircraft carrier, causing the CAG to spill his coffee. Yeah, really. Not a good idea. Really. Uh, if this DA-40 had a cockpit voice recorder, it would have been a classic textbook case of, hold my beer, watch this. Right. <laughs> I think so. I think so. I don't now, know. Again, we don't know that alcohol. We don't know that. We don't, I bet we it's don't just, know that. It's you're just, not uh, saying that alcohol was involved. That would be a new violation. That would be something new. And maybe if we scroll down a couple more pages here, um, <laughs> but you know, and part of this thing too is is you know, I can see you know making a few low passes, not over a crowded uh, beach, 
uh, I can see making a few low passes over a coyote. Yeah, and plus uh, in a cub or a champ or something like that in a DA forty, I don't think that's the right airplane. Yeah, and exactly, and also staying five hundred feet away is not that hard. No, I mean five hundred feet is plenty close for a thrill. <laughs> all right, and and uh, you know, oh, anyways, okay. Hey, also in the uh, uh, whiskey tango foxtrot department, um, <laughs> we've got a uh, which so, is a. Which is a bulging file drawer. I know. It's getting bigger and bigger. Um, so I just this morning got around to looking at this video or these pictures of this hanger filling with foam. Is this real? Is this not like, did somebody like Photoshop or whatever the video equivalent of Photoshop? Have you both looked at this? Yeah. Jeb, you posted this. Yeah. This I, is I, just crazy. I just thought, I, when, when, when I saw, so you wrote, on the, uh, you wrote on the list here, you put uh, 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 Teterboro hanger fills with foam, all right, uh -huh. and you made a little joke about it, and I thought, oh, okay, there's going to be like a big pile of foam around an airplane in a hanger, okay, and I go to the picture, all right, <laughs> I go to the picture, and, and it's, like, it's like a scene from, you know, a comic movie, all right, where you're just looking at the outside of a hanger, all right, and uh, there's a great, oh, what was it, um, um, was it Weird Science? So there's some movie where the uh, where the the geeks uh, uh, arrange to uh, get a laser to shine on a huge container of Jiffy Pop popcorn, and the building filled <laughs> with popcorn. All right, and and it just like filled and filled and filled, and suddenly the popcorn started bursting out the windows, and there's popcorn flowing out of every orifice of this building. Okay, that's what this hangar looked like. All right, the yeah, hangar. Who dumped, who dumped all the fizzies at the swimming? I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's foam. Coming out of you know the cracks between the hangar door panels, all right. You know the windows is foam pouring out of them. This is just like crazy. This is not the first time something like this has happened. Really? Back no, about ten it's, years it's ago, Avweb ran some images. They were they were from inside the hangar of uh, a similar situation: a large corporate hangar with several biz jets in it, and the fire suppression system went haywire, and these aircraft were covered with foam. The pictures, and are probably still on AvWeb somewhere. I, I haven't had the, the bandwidth here, to, uh, mental, excuse me, mental bandwidth to go, go find them. Um, you, you see this sea of foam with a vertical stabilizer sticking up out of it. Yeah, but see, that's what I expected yeah. to see. It, didn't it, it's, it's, like, it's like, you know, a scene from Jaws or something. Dun, 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 yeah, right. Mommy, <laughs> Johnny pulled the, poured the whole bubble of bubble stuff in the jacuzzi. Yeah, dude, you're going to need a bigger hangar, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, on the uh, other hand, the airplanes came out clean. Right. Swell. Well, and, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that because... Oh. Uh, I don't know how corrosive this stuff is. For example, I don't know what it does to. Oh, to it's not. It's not a good scenario. I, I don't know what it does to paint. I don't know what it does to antennas and and brakes and, and tires and and stuff like that. And um, and, and who the it, heck is going to clean up this mess? I mean, my with gosh. what? <laughs> what are you going to do? Shovel all this off to the Hudson? No, give somebody a garden hose and say wash it down. I don't know. It's just run, run, run out to Sears and get a couple of wet vacs and go to work. Does the regs really require that they have a system that has that much foam in it to protect it's not the, the regs? It's insurance. Still, is that? I mean, that's nope. like seems like a little bit of over engineering here. They have that much foam available in the hangar that it bursts out of the seams. But, what I think some of this is, you know, I, I'm not an expert on building codes or anything like that. What I think some of this is is based on is how much combustible material is going to be contained in the structure at any one time, 
And some of these biz jets hold substantial amounts of jet fuel, you know, three, 4,000 gallons. So uh, that's what the fire codes are based on. That's what the fire suppression system is based on. And if you're going to be the guy insuring the building and its contents, um, you know, you, you might want that quantity of foam. Now, as I think we've identified, there might be a drawback or two to requiring that quantity of foam. But, um, uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but I if have no you really to... need it, you're really going to be glad you got it. Yeah, I, I have no reason to believe that any of this is faked. And, and according to the caps, this is on a, a web.me.com uh, page. Uh, according to the, um, the taglines there, the description that goes with it, this occurred on June 17, uh, a hangar operated by Jet Aviation at uh, Teterboro, New Jersey. So it should be relatively easy to, uh, to figure out. Um, wh- one thing I'd like to know, just kind of out of curiosity, is uh, this was apparently a helicopter operation that was, what was landing uh, at Teterboro. And um, there's two stills, and then there's a short video, and, and it's clear that there's a rotor uh, turning overhead. Uh, one thing I'd like to know is, did these guys just have a camera out for for general purposes, or did you know the tower or someone else alert them? How did how did they come to be at this place at at, at this particular time to snap these images? And why haven't we heard about this from somebody else or some other some other source too? Uh, but uh, this is something that's happened before, and, and uh, all things considered, it will probably happen again. Really, really. The uh, the uh, huge thing of Jiffy Pop reference was actually from a movie called Real Genius, all right? And uh, here's a trivia question for you. The connection with between... Googler. What's that? Pretty good with the Google to come up with. Yeah, was uh, Real Genius, and the trivia question is, what is the connection between the movie Real Genius and aviation? And while you're pondering that, I'll say, welcome, folks, to episode episode uh, 194 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. We're recording this episode on uh, Saturday morning, uh, July 3rd, 2010. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar this morning is, uh, first of all, Jeb Burnside's here, talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How May I have 10,000 marbles, please? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh! I think that's cause... that's Animal House. That's Animal House. Oh, okay, all right. I was wondering. I'm thinking that's not from Real Genius. No, uh, I'm uh, fine. I'm I'm sleepy. I had to pull most of an all nighter last night. Uh huh. Busy working I'm, on one of your myriad uh, extracurricular yeah, projects. Yeah. No, you have to build an empire to have one. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And uh, so, well, we appreciate you getting up early and hanging out with us here and, uh, and chatting with us. Uh, I assume you've got a supply of coffee on hand. I, I may not speak um, um, on the recording here for a few moments, in a few moments. Because you're going to run off to refill the coffee. Yeah. I- I wouldn't say that out loud, of course. No, 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 no. Because you, you, you uh, for the always record, you pay listen. rapt attention to everything yeah. we say here. Always right. listen to everything that is said. That's right. That's right. Also, here is Dave Higdon, who's joining us from uh, Wichita, Kansas, where it's getting ready to do it, huh, David? What's going on? Oh, it's just looking gray and overcast, and uh, not really a uh, inviting day to be up at the uh, EAA Chapter Eighty Eight uh, Independence Day fly-in at. Uh, at Newton, but I imagine they got a crowd anyway. Yeah, it's looking like it's going to get stormy here. It's in the forecast. Uh, we'll we'll get through it. We've got the firecrackers, bottle rockets, and Roman candles in a dry, cool place. Yeah, that's right. It's uh, 
the day before uh, Independence Day here in the United States, and uh, so everybody's preparing for uh, festivities of one sort or another. Uh, and I'm Jack Hodgson. I am uh, back again at the UCAP Summer Headquarters, uh, high atop Lookout Point in, oh, it's so good to be home, Nottingham, New Hampshire. This was a long, busy trip. I'm telling you, I had hardly a, a moment for myself on this trip. It was really crazy. And uh, um, I'm really happy to be home, if only for four days. Then I head down to your area, Jeb. I'm going down to uh, Orlando for Orlando. like nine days. But once again, they uh, won't commit to a schedule, so I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to escape. I'm going to try desperately to escape a little bit and come down and visit you and uh, absolutely check come out on. the Empire. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but we'll see how that goes. So, uh, anyways... Uh, let's see now. I completely lost my place here. What's next? Um, we did. Oh, the- our friend Dave Schalbetter. Um, at least that was the first person I heard about this from. Uh, turned us on to this uh, new concept airplane. Um, French firm introduces high performance pusher. Uh, so this is from uh, Cobalt Industries. Uh, I guess they're calling it the CO50 or the CO50. Um, I think it's kind of cool. I, I, I'm i not clear on what's going to be at Oshkosh regarding this airplane, whether there's a flying model or if it's just a mock-up. Or Do you guys know anything about this? Somewhere I've got, uh, I can go find it while we're talking about it. I've got an advanced copy of the press release list here somewhere. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah, same here. They've got a press conference scheduled, um, but uh, it's not clear to me uh, if they're going to have a mock-up. I, I can't imagine. Well, they they say they're going to have a flying prototype at Oshkosh. Really? Really? Yeah, really? that's what the materials say. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting uh, kind of an interesting breed of cat. It's yeah. Like, Let's see now the the aircraft so this is a uh, sort of well it's it's low wing but it's got a canard uh, wing on the front and it's got sort of a twin vertical tail on the back. It's a pusher prop. Um a very sleek looking retractable gear. The blurb in Avweb describes it as uh, the aircraft will com- uh will compete with high-performance piston single category. It will be powered by a twin turbo TCM uh, TSI OFF 550D. You guys know what this means. I don't. Um, it's an IO 550 with, with, with turbocharged IO 550 with FADEC. Thank you. Um, uh, turning a tail-mounted pusher prop, uh, they predict 245 knots cruise at 25,000 feet on 25 gallons per hour. I um, sure hope that fuel flow is an error. Um, that's... Probably not. That's a that's a high fuel flow, um, but um, you know that's we can talk about one of the issues with with TCM's uh, implementation of FADEC at, a, at a, perhaps at a later date. Um, but uh, that is um, not uh, an unlikely number for uh, a turbocharged engine or any any five fifty cubic inch uh, aircraft engine ask to produce uh, 75% of greater power, uh, regardless of its altitude. In this case, you know, the altitude's kind of irrelevant because it's turbocharged, uh, and it's probably not at its critical altitude at 25,000 feet. Yeah. What does I it mean? I was expecting something more in the, you know, brushing the, the upper edge of the high teens. Uh, you, you could certainly pull it back. Well, not with the FADEC. You could pull it back to that Lena Peak with a conventional, the you know, FADEC puts that prop. much more through it. Wow. Well, I don't want to go there this morning, but I don't have all my, all, all my <laughs> facts okay. in, in place. But um, what does it mean? That. What does it mean when they describe it as a twin turbo? 
means two turbochargers. Two, two turbochargers. There's there's two banks of cylinders. There's two exhaust headers. There's two exhaust pipes. There's two um, turbochargers. Got it. Okay. Um, so it's a sleek looking airplane. I mean, obviously, you know, none of us can, and certainly not me, talk to its performance. Rea- you know, in reality, but it's a cool looking airplane. I kind of like it. And uh, it is. It is kind of cool, boy. It has got some. Uh, you know, by this uh, uh, illustration. And what came in the press kit? The uh, well, it's got a lot of windows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does. Which, you know, you know, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, I, you know, welcome to the party. Uh, I, I kind of wonder how they've gotten this far down the road um, with a flying prototype, uh, and it hasn't made the news before. Yeah, I and David, I believe you're reading from something that says about a flying prototype. I thought I read something that said a non-flying prototype at Oshkosh, but uh, well, this I can't could, find this the could, reference. So. This could definitely be a typo, uh, but uh, I'm just reading it off the uh, the uh, AvWeb report because well, it's soon some to be reason flying, or not finding the yeah. uh, press yeah. kit. The, Av- so. the AvWeb coverage says soon to be flying prototype, right. and somewhere here I'm, I had a press release. I may have hit the delete button on it. So the, the copy I'm reading says the airplane on display at Oshkosh will be the flying prototype. Whether it, And at the top it says we'll have the soon-to-be-flying prototype. So Yeah, I think it could be a little typo there. Um, yeah, I, I, I would probably bias it more in Jeb's direction on the soon-to-be-flying. Now, in my fantasy, um, later on down the line, they put one of these little uh, fan jets on this guy instead of the pusher prop. Um, and kind of really turn it into a fighter plane. Uh, it, it, I, it's always stuck in my mind, um, and this goes back maybe even 10 years, um, but uh, Bert Rutan, who um, is one of the people, if not the person, who really popularized this pusher prop um, thing, uh, he, was, he said at a forum at Oshkosh that he kind of has abandoned that format, that's, that uh, arrangement, because uh, as the years went on, as he was able to do better and better uh, fluid dynamics analysis, he concluded that pusher props actually a really bad place to put a propeller because the air yeah. is so disturbed back there that you just lose all kinds of efficiency. Um, so well, Before we go any further, I, I found my copy of their press release, and uh, there's a quote uh, from CEO David Lurie. Uh, quote, we are very excited to introduce ourselves and the CO-50 at EAA AirVenture. The CO-50 is a culmination of seven years of thorough design, prototyping, and stress testing. We're now getting ready to do static, I'm sorry, ground static, dynamic, and first stages in flight testing to prepare for certification. So it's a non-flying uh, pre-production prototype. Okay. Cool. Yeah, David? I say cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, even if we just get to kind of walk up to a big model, that'd be kind of cool because this is a sexy looking little airplane. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then none of these press releases even fantasize about price. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't think. Anyways, cool. <coughs> the cold. Um, just, just you know, a c- couple of things here. Um, numbers um, predicts a two hundred forty-five knot cruise, twenty-five thousand feet, twenty-five gallons an hour, five place configuration. Useful load of 1,213 pounds. Empty weight of the composite airframe is, is uh, 1,867 pounds. Tanks hold 109 U.S. gallons. That's, um, you know, bracketing as far as uh, the empty weight's going to go up, first of all, because that's, that's an extremely light um, number um, for a, um, 
uh, an IO550 powered single with turbochargers. Um, you know, yeah, the composites buy you something, but they don't buy you that much. And the landing gear systems and yada yada yada. So uh, that that weight number and empty weight number is going to go up. Um, look, just just uh, you know, doing the math here in my head, that's 3,100 gross weight. Um, that's fairly uh, fairly lightweight, also. Um, so. I think we'll probably see both of those numbers go up. You might even see more fuel tankage. But no, and, I'll, sh- I'll shut it. With almost 640 pounds of fuel, uh, we would hope that their uh, useful load would go up somewhere along the way, too, because full fuel in that puppy leaves you yeah. about five, you know, not, not, five, not 500 pounds. Yeah, well, right at doing, 500 pounds. I was just doing the math on my airplane. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm basically am empty at 2200 and I've got a um, 3550 gross uh, with the tip tanks um, and I hold 100, 120 no, I'm sorry 115 total uh, do the math yeah okay cool airplane look forward to it we'll see it later on maybe we'll see a yeah, model at least I'm not cruising at 245 knots either so yeah about five hundred and seventy-five pounds of full fuel payload. So, yeah, that's that's not that far out with a lot of other airplanes in the same more than more than a Malibu has. Yeah, yeah. David, you've put on the list. Um, I and I've gotten a little confused about all the different entries on the list regarding this subject, but I think this is new from last episode. Um, a follow-up on the one twenty-one five ELT issue, um, and I will remind you that in the thing you you even put yourself briefly. All right. Um, is there new news about this? Well, there's an example of why I think that moving over is a smart thing to do. Uh, lost an airplane en route to Glacier National Park this past week. Uh, four people on board. Uh, the wreckage has since been found. No survivors. But it was out in a part of the world where, and they were on no flight plan, Perfectly legal VFR flight from uh, 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 between two airports in the vicinity. They're going to visit Glacier Park International Airport. Uh, airplane went down in really terrible terrain. They never got an ELT signal from that 121.5 that was on board. Right. And uh, but it was the next day before they were able to uh, to to get search and rescue in and find the wreckage by following their flight line. Uh, if this had been the kind of accident that would trigger normally these newer designs, and, and they are supposed to be better at triggering in these accidents, uh, search and rescue authorities would have had a, had a uh, pretty good uh, fix on where the airplane was in the first hour. And people could have been en route there at the speed of heat. I hadn't was, heard that the they... airplane was overdue, and when the airplane was overdue, then they started looking for it, and you know it all backtracked through badly. It, it wouldn't have made any difference in whether they found anybody alive. I'm not saying that, yeah. but and Jim and I are both instrument-rated pilots, and we're both very prone to even on when we're not on instrument flight plans to exercising flight following. Uh, 
And, you know, a lot of us out there, I know a lot of guys who will tell you they wouldn't fly across the street without being on an IFR flight plan. Well, that's all well and good for those guys. But these were just four folks off on an afternoon jaunt or on a on a day off jaunt to to go do some touristy type stuff in a in a uh, in a Piper Arrow. And uh, had this been survivable uh, and by all appearances, it wasn't. Had this been survivable, uh, you know, the 24-hour difference between being found the old-fashioned way and when they could have been found with new technology ELT could have made the difference between somebody living and somebody dying. So, and that, um, that's my promise of brief. Jane, it's, you ignorant slut. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, a couple of three things here. Uh, first of all... Um, we don't know which ELT uh, this particular aircraft had. It certainly had a 120-15. It did not have a 406 uh, from, from the press reports, anyway. Um, so we don't know if it was an early uh, um, uh, first TSO version ELT or a later second TSO version. Uh, we can probably guess that it was a, a later second TSO version. Uh, it, it apparently did not activate, according to reports. Uh, um, the um, flight, yes. I mean, um, until it was overdue, there wasn't any any SAR effort uh, that was engaged. Um, when that became obvious, um, via radar, uh, uh, radar tapes, essentially, um, the flight was tracked to roughly the location at which it disappeared. Um, it was apparently not a survivable accident. Um, and, um, I guess we don't know because, um, I say we don't know, uh, when I, when I, I say that certainly I don't know, but, uh, I think also that, um, um, when we compare the, the later, uh, 121.5 TSO with the current 406 TSO, uh, I don't know. If there are qualitative differences um, in the requirements for a triggering mechanism, uh, don't know if those, if there are qualitative differences uh, between this particular ELT and this particular airplane and a later model or or freshly manufactured 406 ELT and its triggering mechanism. Um, it's difficult for me to state as a consequence that, yes, a 406 ELTA would have activated and B, uh, would have led the, uh, would have led rescuers to, uh, the accident site more quickly. Um, in, in any event, the actual finding of the wreckage was, um, done via radar. Uh, radar tapes and, and the radar data that that was correlated to the flight's departure from that airport and, and uh, uh, they tracked the the target to until uh, it disappeared. Um, very rugged terrain. Uh, don't know obviously why the airplane crashed or or what could have been done either to to prevent the crash or to uh, um, find the wreckage uh, more quickly. Um, but um, I guess where I'm coming from is. Um, this is a worst case scenario. Okay. This is a, re a really remote area. Um, 
this is a, a um, well, what appears to have been a catastrophic, non-survivable accident. Um, and um, I guess where I come from is this doesn't, um, in my mind, add up to a good argument for ELTs for those reasons. Oh, yeah. This, okay. Now we're coming back to your, I believe it was your statement last time or time before that maybe ELTs are, are outmoded. Exactly. That's where I'm coming from. I, you know, I, just, I, I wanted to respectfully point out a few points here uh, with, the, with the idea in mind that, uh, yeah, you know, in a perfect world, we would have a device that would, that would you know, yell, Mayday, here I am, uh, but with cell phones, with radar coverage, with other products, um, be they PLBs, be they um, uh, the spot uh, position tracking device, um, be they something that you know hasn't really been invented yet, um, um, is the ELT the best we can do? I'm not convinced it is. I'm convinced. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty convinced. Let's put it that way. That it's time maybe to stick a fork in the ELT technology as it exists whether it's 121.5 or 406, mm-hmm. think about something else um, that is um, a little bit more um, bulletproof uh, as far as will it work, will it not work, and uh, certainly uh, less maintenance-intensive and less expensive for the All right. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen the stories about the discovering the wreckage. I've only read the stories about the earlier search. There was, though, some interesting references to uh, um, text messages and cell phone calls from folks on board this aircraft. Yeah. Um, did that play into them discovering the location? No, it didn't. Apparently, uh, there was... Uh, I've been kind of following this probably about to the same level that Dave has, this particular accident, uh, simply because uh, there was fairly extensive local coverage there in Montana. And um, um, those those stories pop up in my my email every day. Um, There was early speculation that there was texting and or Facebook posting uh, from the airplane uh, once it was airborne. But based on the timestamps and based on the um, departure time of the aircraft, that has been discounted. Those, uh, the the texting, emailing, and/or Facebook posting occurred before the aircraft took off. I see. Okay, it it did though provide interesting, maybe useful information about their intentions. Yes, um, you yeah. know. So, we, you know. So they didn't file a flight plan. Obviously, they weren't even required to fly, file a flight plan. But they did note that you know we're going roughly that way. And uh, um, I think you make a good point. Personally, as a technologist, Jeb, I, myself as a technologist, I, I it's I think you make a good point about there being all sorts of other sources of location information that uh, potentially are useful. And uh, it's all interesting. David, last word before we move on, real quick. No, I'm dead. Okay. Sort of related, um, not related to this particular incident, but on a similar subject, uh, we've seen a couple of stories in the last week or so about next gen um, being flawed. Who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> who, <the fuck? laughs> um, who is it here? Some some official authority, some somebody in the know. The uh, NEC, the Transportation Department's Inspector General, is that what it is? Yeah, that's uh, who it was. Issued a report saying, "Ooh, maybe not." Uh, what did the report say? A quote from the report says, NextGen may not deliver deliver the expected long-term benefits 
and ultimately puts billions of taxpayer dollars at risk unless the FAA sets expectations for the benefits to be achieved, the report said. FAA has not yet acquired the necessary skill sets and expertise to successfully implement the program, according to the report. Um, gee, uh, again, who could have known? Um, <laughs> this, this goes, and I, I, you know, I'm dating myself here, but for as long as I can remember, uh, and this goes back to... Since you know, the late 50s. Yeah. No, uh, not really. Uh, but as long as my professional memory uh, um, um, exists on these topics... Uh, and that goes back going on 30 years, um, the FAA has never been able to uh, manage a sizable, i.e. billions of dollars, uh, technical uh, equipment program. Um, it's, it's just simply incapable of this. It's, it's like, uh, you know, uh, um, I don't know, putting uh, uh, um, um, a scorpion on the back of a frog to go across the river. The scorpion is going to stab the frog, and they're both going to drown. Um, this is going to happen with any kind of an FAA technical program. Um, part of that reason, admittedly, is not the FAA's fault. Uh, um, part of the reason for this, I should say, is not the FAA's fault. Um, by the time the FAA um, determines the appropriate hardware and software, um, the, um, the state of the art has already moved on from that benchmark. And by the time the equipment is procured, um, tested, installed, and, and brought up to speed, um, uh, I think it's Moore's Law, uh, uh, Jack yep. takes over, yep. uh, says that you know, uh, uh, for every uh, um, uh, period of time, whatever it is, I think it's uh, every, like things- every, every generation, yeah, things get... Uh, um, you know, twice as small and four times the speed for half the cost, or something like that. Yeah, right. I don't. I don't remember the exact algorithm of Moore's law, but the point is, things the, change quickly in technology. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. That's that's the point. And uh, um, the FAA is never going to be able to overcome that. Uh, the flip side of which is um, they don't have the management techniques, the management skills, the management uh, um, bureaucracy, for lack of a better word that enables them to manage a project of this size in scope. And that's mainly, I think, what, what yeah. the, the IG here is saying. Uh, and again, that's, that should not be anything new or surprising to anyone who's, who's paid any attention whatsoever to the FAA's equipment procurement issues. Uh, yeah. I mean, I've been trying to say um, in my, you know, not nearly as knowledgeable as you guys way, that this whole... ADSB requirement by what is it 2022 all right is or whatever that date is it's like that far in the future is nuts because by then this technology is going to be so obsolete and antiquated that, you know things change you know and and kind of calling back to your your reference about about locator beacons all right the, the idea of having centralized pro systems like this is not the way technology is moving the way technology is moving is things that are distributed things that are scattered things that are you know very you know spread out um and uh, it just kind of strikes me as 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 a mistake to think that you're going to devise a a centralized um, answer to anything, you know. Um, well, uh, go ahead, Dave. I was just going to say that, that that's all a good point, Jack, and 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 it's certainly uh, on point. Uh, the flip side of which is that to expect 
aviation users and, and a government agency managing hundreds of thousands of flight a day to keep up the way, and don't take this the wrong way, this isn't aimed at you, but to keep up the way cell phone updaters do. Oh, we've got a new, <laughs> new technology for this. You know, while the old one's only a year old, but we all need to get the new one now to, to play with this. It's not practical. It's not reasonable. It's not the way institutional operations work. Uh, if you look at the, the root of ADSB, the promise yeah. of it, the promise of it, which is what's really, in my mind, at risk here, uh, is that they're decentralizing a whole lot of stuff by putting the onus more on the aircraft to provide the data that the FAA uses. Uh, you know, you get this widely distributed network of stations to receive the ADSB out signal from aircraft that's then routed to the control centers, and that's where it gets centralized. Uh, because somebody's got to be managing the airspace. Uh, and it's true. Man, this stuff moves so fast. But a lot of this can be worked into the hardware and make the hardware smarter, more robust, smaller, cheaper over the long term uh, without having to reinvent the underlying technology as fast as technology would allow us to. Uh, but the lead time on this you know, that 2020 date is for equipping to use the system. That's our deadline. The FAA has been saying that it's going to have the whole infrastructure to support this in place by the end of 2013, uh, which is in technology and government project terms like day after tomorrow. Uh, and the worrisome part of the of the inspector general's report, and this is what inspector generals do too, by the way, is they they call out all the warts of whatever agency that they 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 are a part of, uh, is that they're not managing the the installation, the coordination well, and the underlying message I get out of this is they're not really sure how they're going to use it to fulfill the promises that underlie the whole change. Yeah, yeah, that's. I, there's two things going on here. Before I get to the second one, let me let me point out um, a couple of other items from this IG report, according to this article. I'll just read these two graphs. Uh, a government analysis cited by Lou Dixon, the Assistant Inspector General for the Transportation Department, shows that some air and ground technologies planned for the year 2025 may be delayed by a decade or more and that they may cost more than the projected $40 billion budget, the report said. Um, so we, we've gone a little bit beyond the 2013 date, yeah. with which we're all familiar, uh, for at least the initial slash basic ground-based technologies to be up and running uh, by eight years. And then we've possibly, according to the IG report, tacked on another 10 um, before all of this stuff is up and running. Yeah. Now, some of that is, um, uh, uh, I don't know, some of that is blowing snow, I guess, because um, as, as we just discussed, the technology always changes, uh, plans always change, needs always change, and, and no one, least of all of the FAA, can predict what technologies and equipment we are going to need 
on the ground in the year 2035, 25 years from now. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's just so, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's impossible, yeah. and, and, and yeah. you know, someone ought to be spanked uh, uh, with a ruler or something if they, if they believe that we can reliably uh, and accurately forecast that far into the future yeah. on something like this. Uh, the second, second thing here is Dixon, Dixon apparently is the IG. Dixon said NextGen is an ambitious plan that, if successful, will let FAA handle as much as three times more air traffic while reducing the agency's operating cost. NextGen is the most com- complex effort FAA has barked, embarked upon, he said. Um, both, neither of those, those uh, two statements in that last paragraph I read give me a warm fuzzy. Um, first of all... Um, uh, yeah, okay, next unit is the most complex effort the FAA has embarked upon, but um, as, as we've discussed, the FAA does not have a good re- track record on, on uh, implementing complex projects. Uh, but the other thing here, which is kind of my second point, is uh, this whole process is designed to offload from the FAA and its budget um, the the uh, existing expenses and responsibilities, I would add, to conduct air traffic control. Uh, they want to reduce the number of controllers. They want to reduce the number of radars. And, and going back to controllers, they especially want to reduce um, the the salaries and the the uh, uh, retirement costs for controllers in the out years. Um, they're trying to do this. They're trying to replace humans uh, with uh, technology, with, with black boxes. Uh, and uh, they're more than happy, of course, to, to spend all these taxpayer dollars uh, with Raytheon and with Lockheed Martin and with other, co- uh, other companies with, with which they're comfortable doing business. Um, it, the whole thing just strikes me as, as kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul here and, and, and transferring uh, uh, resources, wealth, whatever, from, from one sector to another. Um, at the end of the day, I think we all know that there is still going to be radar out there, if for no other reason than, than uh, our continuing exercise in security theater. Um, and to, to suppose that we're going to get to a radarless environment uh, that is based on a decentralized network, uh, network architecture where every, every airplane is talking to every other airplane, and um, it's, oh, you know, you go first. No, no, please, after you kind of thing is, is just ludicrous. And uh, uh, there has to be some, you know, independent, arbitrary third party to, to, uh, uh, to decide some of these issues on a real-time basis. And as I understand uh, uh, NextGen, as I understand um, uh, the FAA's vision uh, for the air traffic control system of the future, um, they're going to try to put as much of that uh, responsibility in the cockpit as they can. And I, I you know, I, I'm not sure that's going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Uh, you know, in, in out where Jack and Jeb and I spend most of our flying time, that's not a, at all that far-fetched an idea. It's when we start to get into the metro areas where the traffic saturation goes up the diversity of traffic goes up and the, 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 the need for very precise, very rapid sequencing and separation uh, services becomes critical. And, you know, we're basically talking about the Bravo airspaces in, the, in this case. Uh, and I'm losing confidence in this on another basis, 
wholly unrelated to ATSB, ADSB, or NextGen. And that's the total dependence on satellite-based system to be the primary and only basis for navigation in this system when we know, when the world knows how easy it is to disrupt satellite service, when we've had repeated instances of satellite service, uh, navigation service being disrupted, and it doesn't take long when you've got a couple of hundred aircraft converging on, say, Kennedy Airport in the airspace, and something disrupts satellite navigation service for six or seven minutes, you've got major chaos in just those few minutes. Yeah. Imagine a longer disruption, and I'm not talking about, uh, you know, solar flares, solar storms, which can do it for hours, uh, to very inexpensive to make very technologically dirty and unsophisticated jammers that can shut down navigation services over a few square miles with very little power. Uh, we need to, even the uh, World Maritime Organization, uh, kind of the seafaring variant of, or parallel to ICAO, I, sh- I should say, they're even starting to uh, uh, sound the alarm about the need for a backup for satellites. And in every country around the world, it seems, at least it feels like it, but this one, that risk is being taken seriously and steps are being uh, uh, taken to address the issue. And here we shut down a system that provided the, could have provided the backbone for a backup and are in the process of dismantling it. Uh, there's even been a solution to, well, you've got millions of GPS receivers out there. You can't just flip a switch and make them ELORAN receivers, too. And some uh, very clever engineers have come up with a way to virtually do that with a uh, an antenna with an embedded ELORAN receiver uh, that also feeds the GPS signal in, and you just replace the antenna and plug it into the RF input of your satellite navigation receiver, and it will use the signal that's the more robust. Yeah. Yeah. Jeb, have you ever noticed how, how, how Dave is really good at sneak, especially when we're nearing the end of a subject and I'm kind of itching sneak, to move on? Sneaking in the Elorand He thing. sneaks into another item on the list that I was going to push till next week, but oh well. Um, yeah, David, they're, uh, they're, uh, a, 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 another way of using Loran as a backup. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Do you think it's a good idea? Is it going to work? Is it plausible? It is absolutely plausible. Uh, it's been demonstrated. Uh, they've got the technology uh, in use on a low level in Europe and, and, and some other parts of the world, and they're actually pursuing using eLoran as a uh, as a uh, uh, secondary area nav source, uh, and they're getting accuracy to 0.3 nautical miles. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in the en route environment, uh, or I'm sorry, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. It should say required navigation performance 0.3, which mm-hmm. means that in en route, it's accurate to three-tenths of a mile. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, it, and, and it's not uber expensive, and it's not uh, uh, 
crazy far-fetched it'll be ready in 10-year technology. Uh, and I admit, I, I, I thought the idea of setting up an ELRAN backup that would require some kind of uh, replacement program for GPS receivers was not going to go down very well. But reading recently about these uh, receiver systems that work with the existing satellite navigation box and feeding both signals to the RF input, uh, that kind of uh, preempts any concerns about having to replace the box in your panel. Uh, and there are boxes being made in other parts of the world where the, the box actually has a second embedded chip in it for the ELRAN reception. Uh, I don't believe those are widely available. I haven't. You can't use it over here, so you won't see them on sale at Sporties. Mm-hmm. Before Jeb, final thoughts on this whole subject before we move on? Um, not, not really. I, I, the only real thought I would have is, is um, relative to all this talk about a, quote, satellite-based air traffic control system, unquote. Um, on, on a couple levels, we already have that. Uh, it's called GPS. Uh, it, it, it's used for navigation, um, and it's used for very precise navigation. Um, amazingly, unless uh, the airframe is, is uh, relatively new, and there are still a lot of older airframes out there that are, that are uh, doing uh, fine, uh, that are operating every day, um, there, there is no GPS on board some of these scheduled air carriers. Uh, again, admittedly, these we're talking about older airframes. Yeah, but still, it's a mind-boggling concept. It is a mind-boggling concept that that some of these carriers are still smoking around on on VOR and ADF, um, and uh, in DME, and it's it's just you know a, really a head scratcher. Um, so, you know, that's kind of one one uh, um, point that I'd like to make is that. The vast majority of us already are using satellites um, in the airspace and in the air transportation system to navigate. Second item, uh, we're also using satellites to get weather information. And, and uh, whether it's NextRed or it's textual or it's, uh, it's something else, um, I'm doing that pretty much every time I fly. Um, the, the missing link here is um, using the satellites for voice communication to talk back and forth with ATC, or using the satellites for text communication to communicate clearances and or uh, um, perhaps less important information um, to and from uh, ATC uh, in, in the airplane. Um, that should be relatively easy to implement. Um, we need a we need a box in the airplane. We need you know some way to link uh, the controller's console to the satellite. Uh, that cannot be rocket science, literally or figuratively. Um, but uh, as, as Dave correctly points out, whether it's sunspots, whether it's uh, um, uh, a military action, whether it's uh, um, um, you know our new overlords coming and, and they knock a couple of satellites out in a, in a collision in orbit or something, um, we need a backup, mm-hmm. and uh, we need a backup to the satellites. And uh, we have that now um, with, uh, in the navigation realm with uh, VOR. Um, we maybe should think about <clears throat> ELRAN or some other uh, solution as an additional backup or as, as the longer-term backup when we take down all these VOR stations. Um, we have that 
uh, we have a backup for satellite-based weather information. Uh, pick up the radio and talk to flight service. Uh, call a controller, whatever. We have uh, automated uh, stations transmitting all over the world. Uh, so we have that kind of a backup. Um, if, we had a, if, if we went to an all-satellite-based communication system for ATC, we would still need a backup. And what do we think that that would be? That would be controller speaking into a microphone and pushing a button at the same time and, and broadcasting over a ground-based antenna. Uh, so certainly I, I, I see the need. I, I, I see uh, um, you know, perhaps a uh, kid-in-a-candy store kind of mentality of, of the FAA and or others uh, trying to uh, um, get this, uh, this air traffic control system to the next level as far as equipment and uh, capabilities and software and, and uh, um, 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 pie in the sky. I, I get that. But that doesn't mean it's cost-effective, and that doesn't mean it's all, it's all uh, uh, the way to go at this particular point in time. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Uh, so uh, let's see. You know, we've got uh, two quick... Uh, Some, uh, somehow or another, moving on with a cup of coffee is just not the same. It's, <laughs> oh, it's just, sorry, Dave. Sorry. Unless, unless you're a little bit more enlightened on your coffee. Well, you know, and it's Saturday morning, so Bloody Marys are not, in a, you know, not un- unappropriate. Um, and uh, so, anyways, I'll leave that to, to you know as an exercise to the listener. Um, we love hearing from listeners. We hear from listeners all the time. Uh, it, it, uh, some time ago, um, I'm pleased but kind of embarrassed to say we reached the point where we can't respond to all the listeners' uh, responses we hear from, but we try to as many as we can. Two of note in the last uh, week or so. First of all, um, in an episode about two or three episodes ago, I made this kind of casual reference. I think I referred to Jeb as being a mixer. Uh, uh, something was going on in the podcast, and I said, you're just a mixer. And then I said, uh, you know, swell prize to anybody who can get that cultural reference. And uh, and then we immediately forgot about the whole thing and left it at that. I heard from uh, listener Rick Felty uh, over, uh, and, I, and I say his last name because he's kind of becoming famous for his uh, in-cockpit flying videos on YouTube. But... Uh, um, and uh, has become a good friend of the podcast and a friend of myself and a, a regular attendee of our Nashua thing. Rick Felty uh, responded via Twitter um, that the Mixer reference was from the movie Hard Day's Night, uh, the Beatles movie from way back when, where uh, where I believe it was Paul referred to John as being a Mixer uh, in terms of a, it's a troublemaker, uh, it's someone who's like trying to uh, get people worked up and, and uh, cause a commotion and get them excited and cause controversy so uh, uh, yes that's the reference I was making Jeb is in fact a mixer no question well uh, you will just have to turn that up to 11 (laughs) yeah okay there we go oh that's a second cultural reference in today's episode all right we'll have to come back to that one too the other uh, uh, listener uh, uh, contact we had uh, that I wanted to talk about is from listener Ricky B. Uh, and I'm not going to use his last name because he sent us an email. Um, but Ricky B. sent us a nice little email, uh, part of which reads, uh, I'm an aviation enthusiast and have been since my dad first took me up when I was five. Now, 10 years later, I anxiously await my 16th birthday so I can begin flight training. Anyway, and go for it, Ricky. Absolutely. Good for you. Keep it up. Um, Anyway, I heard your request to tell you guys about LSA schools and rentals in episode 191 at my home field, Lancaster Airport, uh, Kilo Lima, November Sierra, uh, in Amish country uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. There's an excellent light sport flight school called Adventure Flight Training. 
They are a flight school and they offer rentals. Right now they have at least three Evictor Sport Stars, at least two or three flight design CTs, and one GoBosch G700. They also have, uh, just within the past couple of weeks, he writes, acquired a Diamond DA-40 for private pilot training. He says they are an excellent school with friendly down-to-earth staff and instructors. The LSAs can be rented for $98 or $99 wet. Their website is www.adventureflighttrainingpa.com. Adventure, there's no dashes, there's no dots, there's no spaces. Adventure Flight Training PA, as in Pennsylvania. Um, he finally... Uh, uh, Continues by saying, or closes by saying, uh, also, if you get the chance to visit the field, uh, Lancaster, which I highly recommend, stop by Fiorentino's and grab some lunch uh, and ask to sit outside on the flight deck. Happy flying, Ricky B. So uh, thanks, Ricky. That's great advice. And uh, um, so, you know, Jeb, you're, it's getting closer to your point of view. You, Je- Jeb, said that there were probably more LSA rentals out there when we re- than we realized about, and we are starting to hear about those. So it's a good well, thing I mean, all around. I'm aware of, of um, down in, um, I think it's Port Charlotte, Punta Gorda, one of the two airports uh, south of maybe, maybe I'm talking about the same airport. I don't remember. Um, there's a, a gentleman who uh, attended our, um, um, our meetup. Um, a year ago, uh, not the most recent one, but the one before that, uh, who has a Remos uh, and, and does flight instruction and, and does, uh, I, I presume it's available for rental also. Um, there's, there's uh, at the Venice airport, there's a, a CT that's available uh, for rental slash flight instruction. I believe at uh, Sarasota Bradenton International, which is the, the large airline service airport here locally, I believe there's also something similar uh, there. And I've I've been remiss in, in not you know peeling that onion a little bit and, and reporting back, um, but uh, you know if we'd been talking two or three years ago maybe I would agree, um, but you know someone's buying these airplanes and um, it, at the prices and uh, uh, that they're paying they're they're paying at the with the equipment that, that these airplanes are are being uh, pushed out the door uh, with, they're not being used uh, for the $100 hamburger once a month. Um, they ha- kind of sort of have to be uh, uh, producing uh, some income for somebody uh, uh, to make it pay. And the traditional way to do that, of course, is put it on the line, lease it back, whatever, uh, and, and uh, get it rented, get it, get it into flight training. And I think that's happening a lot more than we realize. Yeah. David, anything to add? Well, first off, Go for it, Ricky. Good luck, and uh, yeah, when the time comes along, happy birthday, and uh, and uh, we wish you the best in your flight training. Uh, and I was just trying to find. There's a uh, Wichita area operation that's doing LSA training in powered parachutes, and mm-hmm. now of course I can't find the bloody link. Okay. Or the link I'm typing in is not working, so. We'll put it on the list and we'll we'll dig it up for a future episode. Unless you yeah. probably went out of business. Unless you find oh, unless you find it in the <laughs> next so. few minutes. <laughs> I couldn't All right. Resist. Well, there you go. All right. Um, finally, here's a subject that's a little tricky, um, and uh, um, and although we want to talk about it, uh, we I think we want to talk about it with a lot of respect and and a lot of uh, of. Uh, Oh, respect. Um, <laughs> we have, but we're troubled by something. And uh, yeah. Um, yeah. we we have, over the last four years, uh, doing this podcast since the late 50s, um, 
sung the praises of uh, AOPA uh, as an organization that has has helped pilots and general aviation a lot over the years. And and I think we largely think they still do a lot of great things. But lately, they've been doing a few things that have us scratching our heads and, and outright troubled. And uh, Dave, you, you wrote a really interesting blog post, and, and I'm not sure if we have time this afternoon or this morning to go into all the items you've talked about in your blog post. Uh, this is at the UCAP blog. But, uh, but there's one thing in particular they've done that's kind of got us particularly going, huh? Um, and, and Jeb, I think you're the one that's mostly puzzled by this or troubled by it. You want to tell us what we're talking about? Well, I th- I think uh, I think we're all kind of doing a head scratch here, and I don't know that I'm I'm puzzled by it. I, when I first saw this, and it's been a few weeks, let me put it that way, uh, it was a head scratcher, and and I kind of figured, well, okay, that's that's something that um, uh, they're taking a shot at, and and uh, um, it, it'll it, it'll probably. Uh, um, attract a little bit of interest, but we won't hear much more about it. It'll kind of die on the vine. But I keep hearing more and more about it and uh, keep get seeing, um, um, uh, I'll call it spam, but advertising from AOPA uh, on this topic. And this is the AOPA Wine Club. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have... Uh, <clears throat> I don't, yeah, I do have the link in front of me here. Let me click this thing. Wine club, as in the adult as beverage, in, as, as in opposed the adult to beverage, as opposed to uh, I want to go to Miami. Yeah, uh, uh, kind of of uh, right. fermented grapes. Yeah, there yes. we go. Yes. So, yes, what's your what's your you, why well, is this a head scratcher? First of all, uh, just on on a very basic level, mixing aviation and and, and alcohol is is perhaps not um, the the smartest thing. Now, you in know, fairness, we do it well, all the time. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. That's, where I was, that's where I was going to hit. Okay. And, right. and there are people listening to me now who are standing up in their cars saying, but guys, Leinenkugel. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. And, and yes, the, the quick answer is, of course. Uh, and I think uh, from day one, of course, that we have uh, always maintained that the Leinenkugel only comes out when the day's flying is complete. And, uh, uh, it, it is it is uh, uh, consumed sitting around uh, the house uh, watching TV or sitting around the pool or something like that, and and I'm sure at the same in the same breath that AOPA uh, and or anybody else associated uh, or knowledgeable about this program would say that no one, uh, least of least of whom would be AOPA, is advocating mixing alcohol and in, in flying. Uh, it, it's a lifestyle thing that AOPA is trying to push on, on its membership. But uh, um, basically this is a kind of a, I don't know, wine of the month club uh, perhaps uh, kind of thing that, that AOPA is involved in. And I, I guess I come, I come back to, to, at the end of the day, I come up with, with two head scratchers here. First of all is uh, the, the mixing aviation and, and, uh, and alcohol thing. And I, I don't know that it's, it's appropriate for an organization of AOPA stature uh, to do so. We're we're just some podcasters. We're we're just guys running around in shorts and t-shirts, and and uh, um, we we never pretend to to have uh, AOPA's impact on this industry and this community, uh, and we never intend to to pretend to have uh, AOPA's responsibility. Um, second point is. Um, Certainly, I understand the need uh, uh, to make money, 
I readily understand that, and I, uh, I'll look at my bank balance later today and, and get a reminder of that. Um, and I certainly understand the need to diversify uh, when you're an organization uh, uh, like AOPA, which has a finite number of, of people from whom uh, you can consider membership, you can consider members. Uh, I certainly also understand that uh, in this economy uh, that you have to reach out and, and, and touch every uh, possible resource that you can. But at the same time, I, uh, I just wonder if maybe this is a bridge too far. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't have any, any um, uh, issues with Craig Fuller um, from, from all appearances. Uh, he seems to be doing as good a job as anyone could do in this, uh, in this position and at this particular point in time. Uh, but, I, you know, the, the, this particular uh, blurb on the website, the AOPA website, talks about the president's pick uh, as part of this wine club. Uh, effort and and uh, the blurb says the president's pick is just what it sounds. AOPA President Craig Fuller selects six wines for you that he is enjoying at his own table at home. I I I I, I get it. I understand, uh, Mr. Fuller. I really don't want to know what you're drinking at home. <laughs> uh, I, I, I forgive me. I don't consider you to be a wine enthusiast or a wine connoisseur. I'll stick with my Mad Dog 2020 and I'll be just fine. Thank you very much. David, without going into all the details of your your excellent and far-reaching blog post, um, you have anything to add to this? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. I just realized. All right, tie you your know, hands the, behind your the, back for, for those that, for those that weren't assaulted by the email on the the blog post. Basically, I questioned the increasing cost of maintaining an AOPA membership and maintaining what used to be. Uh, included in the dues member benefits, and I'll let you, the rest of the folks read it. On the flip, smart aleck side of me, I'm agreeing with Jeb and suggesting that maybe a beer of the month club might have a broader net. And I'll leave that's it at that. Point. That's, a, that's uh -huh. a very good point. Okay. Um, I'm an AOPA member. I intend to stay an AOPA member. That's just me personally speaking. But I am troubled by these things and confused. Well, I'm not confused. Like Jib says, I kind of understand where they're going with all this. I'm not. I'm not totally comfortable with the particular tracks they've chosen. But more on that, and we'll we'll continue to love and and criticize AOPA and all of these organizations as time goes on. I think. And we're out of time here today. Uh, there's there are some other head scratchers and. and you know, depending on on uh, what we see in the immediate future, and and uh, on, uh, we might get into some of those also. Not head scratchers coming out of AOPA, excuse me. Yeah. Okay. Shout outs. I don't. You know, we don't. We don't have a single shout out on the list. Anybody got any spontaneous shout outs they want to throw in here? Craig Fuller for his uh, President's uh, Club uh, wine selection uh, last month. Uh, <laughs> All right. Smart Alec. Uh, well, I, I got two not exactly of the positive kind. Uh, a uh, shout-out's a shout-out. I want federal law enforcement officials to butt the hell out of the airspace when nobody's violating the freaking rules. Get it, guys? It's time and, for and Chief Wiggins to put away his gun and his bullet and go the freak home. You're talking uh, about, yeah. Uh, I'm, Jeb, headed I'm, there. I'm headed there. The, no, go, let, him, let him go. All right. Go. Okay. All right, yeah. Go ahead, Dave. The, uh, the, the FBI calling an FAA tower and insisting that a guy towing a banner legally maintaining the airspace rules 
not over any restricted area, telling him that they need the tower to tell him to go away because he's, quote, unquote, a safety risk to the people on the ground. Guys, go back to looking for John Dillinger. You don't know what you're talking about where the airspace is concerned. It's not your job. Get over it. Yeah. I'm done. Okay. Um, um, plus, two. Plus, plus two on that. Um, last time I checked, um, the FBI, um, local law enforcement, state, state patrol, none of them have any jurisdiction whatsoever over aviation. Uh, they have no jurisdiction over operations. They have no jurisdiction over what goes on in the airspace, uh, period. Uh, that is the FAA's province. It is a federal function, well-settled law. Um, and I don't, I don't get this. I, I think a lot of it, again, stem, stems from our collective national um, paranoia that continues in the post-9-11 environment. Um, we have a lot of institutional um, um, backstopping or justification for for reactions like this, not least of which is the uh, uh, the continuing uh, TFR over uh, Disney World here in Florida. Basically, uh, Walt Disney Corporation went to Capitol Hill, through wrote a few checks. And said we want to prohibit uh, banner towing and, and advertising and things like that over Disney World. Can you craft a TFR for us? And and it was done in Congress and written into legislation. And boom, there it is. And it ain't going away. Um, putting aside the the um, propriety of, of checkbook uh, legislation, um, the the same thing is going on here. You have. Um, uh, in this instance, uh, someone who didn't like uh, the concept of a banner uh, legally <clears throat> being towed uh, over uh, a specific event, and someone pressured somebody else into making a phone call. And guys, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work that way. It's a great, big, wonderful world out there, and you, and you got to take your lumps with everybody else. Yeah. Okay. Doesn't exactly fall into the category of shout out, but interesting question. Uh, interesting yeah, point. I'm, I'm, yeah. Um, anything else? Any others? Okay. Well, that's four. Yeah. Uh, let's see now. Uh, before we wrap this thing up, uh, do you guys have anything to say about the uh, aviation connection from the movie Real Genius? I have none. No? Nothing. Okay. All right. We'll leave that to the uh, to listeners. They'll figure it out. Definitely time to stick a fork in this one. Um, Jeb Burnside is a, uh, a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Um, day job uh, website, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Uh, I say day job. It's, it's uh, uh, one, of my, uh, one of my ongoing outlets. Uh, AEA.net is another one. And uh, personal website is jeburnside.com. Uh, and um, uh, I'm going to shut up there because I've gotten myself in trouble in the past and, and move on. Yeah, that's right. And you still haven't had enough coffee yet. So Dave Higdon uh, is an <laughs> aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com, AEA.net, DaveHigdon.biz, uh, uncontrolledairspace.com. Yeah, yeah. 
And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com, at my non-aviation blog, uh, and c.blogspot.com, and aroundthefield.net. Thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our terrific uh, uh, episode show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Roy Searle and the many other listeners who have created the uh, disclaimer clips uh, that uh, we use every episode. We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can view the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, web page of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, you were going to say something? Live long, get old, go flying, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Jack, you know, we're, you and I are going to have to have side bets on whether Dave's going to do the wiki thing each, each episode. Yep, but quietly because he'll screw us. Quietly because he'll, he'll, he'll clear the whole thing yep. for us. Yep. AMFFN, guys. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.